0: And shouted into the darkness, I am coming, I shall do it yet! And my voice reverberated down endless passages. I seemed to hear the spirits of those dead workmen who had returned each evening to the starlight and to their wives, and all the generations who had lived in the open air called back to me, You will do it yet, you are coming! He paused, and absurd as he was, his last words moved her. For Kuno had lately asked to be a father, and his request had been refused by the committee. "'His was not a type that the machine desired to hand on. "'Then a train passed. "'It brushed by me, but I thrust my head and arms into the hole. "'I had done enough for one day, so I crawled back to the platform, "'went down in the lift, and summoned my bed. "'Ah, what dreams! And again I called you, and again you refused.' "'She shook her head and said, "'Don't. Don't talk of these terrible things. You make me miserable.' You are throwing civilization away. But I had got back the sense of space, and a man cannot rest then. I determined to get in at the hole and climb the shaft, and so I exercised my arms. Day after day I went through ridiculous movements until my flesh ached and I could hang by my hands and hold the pillow of my bed outstretched for many minutes. Then I summoned a respirator and started. It was easy at first the mortar had somehow rotted and i soon pushed some more tiles in and clambered after them into the darkness and the spirits of the dead comforted me i don't know what i mean by that i just say what i felt i felt for the first time that a protest had been lodged against corruption and that even as the dead were comforting me so i was comforting the unborn i felt that humanity existed and that it existed without clothes how can i possibly explain this it was naked Humidity seemed naked, and all these tubes and buttons and machineries neither came into the world with us, nor will they follow us out, nor do they matter supremely while we are here. Had I been strong, I would have torn off every garment I had, and gone out into the outer air unswaddled. But this is not for me, nor perhaps for my generation. I climbed with my respirator, and my hygienic clothes, and my dietetic tabloids. Better thus than not at all. There was a ladder, made of some primeval metal. The light from the railway fell upon its lowest rungs, and I saw that it led straight upwards out of the rubble at the bottom of the shaft. Perhaps our ancestors ran up and down it a dozen times daily in their building. As I climbed, the rough edges cut through my gloves so that my hands bled. The light helped me for a while, and then came darkness, and worse still, silence, which pierced my ears like a sword. The machine hums! Did you know that? Its hum penetrates our blood. It may even guide our thoughts. Who knows? I was getting beyond its power. Then I thought, this silence means that I am doing wrong. But I heard voices in the silence, and again they strengthened me. He laughed. I had need of them. The next moment I cracked my head against something. She sighed. I had reached one of those pneumatic stoppers that defend us from the outer air. You may have noticed them on the airship pitch dark, my feet on the rungs of an invisible ladder, my hands cut. I cannot explain how I lived through this part, but the voices still comforted me, and I felt for fastenings. The stopper, I suppose, was about eight feet across. I passed my hand over it as far as I could reach. It was perfectly smooth. I felt it almost to the centre. Not quite to the centre, for my arm was too short. Then the voice said, Jump. It is worth it. There may be a handle in the center, and you may catch hold of it, and so come to us your own way. And if there is no handle, so that you may fall and are dashed to pieces, it is still worth it. You will still come to us your own way. So I jumped. There was a handle, and— He paused. Tears gathered in his mother's eyes. She knew that he was faded. If he did not die today, he would die tomorrow. There was not room for such a person in the world and with her pity disgust mingled. She was ashamed at having borne such a son, she who had always been so respectable and so full of ideas. Was he really the little boy to whom she had taught the use of his stops and buttons, and to whom she had given his first lessons in the book? The very hair that disfigured his lips showed that he was reverting to some savage type. On atavism the machine can have no mercy. There was a handle, and I did catch it. I hung, tranced, over the darkness and heard the hum of these workings as the last whisper in a dying dream. All these things I had cared about and all the people I had spoken to through tubes appeared infinitely little. Meanwhile, the handle revolved. My weight had set something in motion, and I spanned slowly, and then I cannot describe it. I was lying with my face to the sunshine. Blood poured from my nose and ears, and I heard a tremendous roaring. The stopper, with me clinging to it, had simply been blown out of the earth, and the air that we make down here was escaping through the vent into the air above. It burst up like a fountain. I crawled back to it, for the upper air hurts, and, as it were, I took great sips from the edge. My respirator had flown goodness knows where, and my clothes were torn. I just lay with my lips close to the hole, and I sipped until the bleeding stopped. You can imagine nothing so curious. This hollow in the grass, I will speak of it in a minute, the sun shining into it, not brilliantly, but through marble clouds, the peace, the nonchalance, the sense of space, and, brushing my cheek, the roaring fountain of our artificial air. Soon I spied my respirator, bobbing up and down in the current high above my head, and higher still were the many airships. But no one ever looks out of airships, and in my case they could not have picked me up. There I was, stranded. The sun shone a little way down the shaft, and revealed the topmost rung of the ladder, but it was hopeless trying to reach it. I should either have been tossed up again by the escape, or else have fallen in and died. I could only lie on the grass, sipping and sipping, and from time to time glancing around me. I knew that I was in Wessex, for I had taken care to go to a lecture on the subject before starting. Wessex lies above the room in which we are talking now. It was once an important state, its kings held all the southern coast from the Andred's Wall to Cornwall, while Wansdyke protected them on the north, running over the high ground. The lecturer was only concerned with the rise of Wessex, so I do not know how long it remained an in international power, nor would the knowledge have assisted me. To tell the truth, I could do nothing but laugh during this part. There was I, with a pneumatic stopper by my side, and a respirator bobbing above my head, imprisoned, all three of us, in a grass-grown hollow that was edged with fern then he grew grave again. Lucky for me that it was a hollow, for the air began to fall back into it and to fill it as water fills a bowl. I could crawl about. Presently I stood. I breathed a mixture, in which the air that hurts predominated whenever I tried to climb the sides. This was not so bad. I had not lost my tabloids and remained ridiculously cheerful, and as for the machine, I forgot about it altogether. My one aim now was to get to the top, where the ferns were, and to view whatever objects lay beyond. I rushed the slope. The new air was still too bitter for me, and I came rolling back after a momentary vision of something grey. The sun grew very feeble, and I remembered that he was in Scorpio. I had been to a lecture on that, too. If the sun is in Scorpio, and you are in Wessex, it means that you must be as quick as you can, or it will get too dark. This is the first bit of useful information I have ever got from a lecture, and I expect it will be the last. It made me try frantically to breathe the new air and to advance as far as I dared out of my pond. The hollow filled so slowly. At times I thought that the fountain played with less vigor. My respirator seemed to dance nearer the earth. The roar was decreasing. He broke off. I don't think this is interesting to you. The rest will interest you even less. There are no ideas in it, and I wish I had not troubled you to come. We are too different, Mother. She told him to continue. It was evening before I climbed the bank. The sun had very nearly slipped out of the sky by this time, and I could not get a good view. You who have just crossed the roof of the world will not want to hear an account of the little hills that I saw, low, colorless hills, but to me they were living, and the turf that covered them was a skin under which their muscles rippled, and I felt that those hills had called with incalculable force to men in the past, and that the men had loved them. Now they sleep, perhaps forever they commune with humanity in dreams. Happy the man, happy the woman, who awakes the hills of Wessex, for though they sleep, they will never die. His voice rose passionately. Cannot you see, cannot all your lecturers see, that it is we who are dying, and that down here the only thing that really lives is the machine? We created the machine, to do our will, but we cannot make it do our will now. It has robbed us of the sense of space and of the sense of touch, It has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act. It has paralyzed our bodies and our wills, and now it compels us to worship it. The machine develops, but not on our lines. The machine proceeds, but not to our goal. We only exist as the blood corpuscles that course through its arteries, and if it could work without us, it would let us die. Oh, I have no remedy, or at least only one, to tell men again and again that I have seen the hills of Wessex as Alfred saw them when he overthrew the Danes. So the sun set. I forgot to mention that a belt of mist lay between my hill and other hills, and that it was the color of pearl. He broke off for the second time. Go on, said his mother wearily. He shook his head. Go on. Nothing that you say can distress me now. I am hardened. I had meant to tell you the rest, but I cannot. I know that I cannot. Goodbye. Vashti stood irresolute. All her nerves were tingling with his blasphemies. But she was also inquisitive. This is unfair, she complained. You have called me across the world to hear your story, and hear it I will. Tell me, as briefly as possible, for this is a disastrous waste of time. Tell me how you returned to civilization. Oh, that, he said, starting. You would like to hear about civilization? Certainly. Had I got to where my respirator fell down? No, but I understand everything now. You put on your respirator and managed to walk along the surface of the earth to a vomitory, and there your conduct was reported to the Central Committee. By no means. He passed his hand over his forehead, as if dispelling some strong impression. Then, resuming his narrative, he warmed to it again. My respirator fell about sunset. I had mentioned that the fountain seemed feebler, had I not? Yes. About sunset it let the respirator fall. As I said, I had entirely forgotten about the machine, and I paid no great attention at the time, being occupied with other things. I had my pool of air, into which I could dip when the outer keenness became intolerable, and which would possibly remain for days, provided that no wind sprang up to disperse it. Not until it was too late did I realize what the stoppage of the escape implied. You see, the gap in the tunnel had been mended. The mending apparatus, the mending apparatus, was after me. One other warning I had, but I neglected it. The sky at night was clearer than it had been in the day, and the moon, which was about half the sky behind the sun, shone into the dell at moments quite brightly. I was in my usual place, on the boundary between the two atmospheres, when I thought I saw something dark move across the bottom of the dell and vanish into the shaft. In my folly I ran down, I bent over and listened, and I thought I heard a faint scrapping noise in the depths. At this—but it was too late. I took alarm. I determined to put on my respirator and to walk right out of the dell. But my respirator had gone. I knew exactly where it had fallen, between the stopper and the aperture, and I could even feel the mark that it had made in the turf. It had gone, and I realized that something evil was at work, and I had better escape to the outer air, and if I must die, die running towards the cloud that had been the color of a pearl. I never started. Out of the shaft, it is too horrible. A worm, a long white worm, had crawled out of the shaft and was gliding over the moonlit grass. I screamed. I did everything that I should not have done. I stamped upon the creature instead of flying from it, and it at once curled around my ankle. Then we fought. The worm let me run all over the dell, but edged up my leg as I ran. Help! I cried. That part is too awful. It belongs to the part that you will never know. Help! I cried why cannot we suffer in silence? Help! I cried. Then my feet were wound together. I fell. I was dragged away from the deer ferns and the living hills, and past the great metal stopper. I can tell you this part. And I thought it might save me again if I caught hold of the handle. It also was enwrapped. It also. Oh, the whole dell was full of the things. They were searching it in all directions. They were denuding it, and the white snouts of others peeped out of the hole, ready if needed. Everything that could be moved, they brought brushwood, bundles of fern, everything, and down we all went intertwined into hell. The last things that I saw, ere the stopper closed after us, were certain stars, and I felt that a man of my sort lived in the sky. For I did fight. I fought till the very end, and it was only my head hitting against the ladder that quieted me. I woke up in this room. The worms had vanished. I was surrounded by artificial light, artificial air, artificial peace. "'and my friends were calling to me down speaking tubes "'to know whether I had come across any new ideas lately. "'Here his story ended. "'Discussion of it was impossible, and Vashti turned to go. "'It will end in homelessness,' she said quietly. "'I wish it would,' retorted Kuno. "'The machine has been most merciful. "'I prefer the mercy of God. "'By that superstitious phrase, "'do you mean that you could live in the outer air?' "'Yes.' Have you ever seen, round the vomitories, the bones of those who were extruded after the great rebellion? Yes. They were left where they perished for our edification. A few crawled away, but they perished too. Who can doubt it? And so with the homeless of our own day, the surface of the earth supports life no longer. Indeed. Ferns and a little grass may survive, but all higher life forms have perished. Has any airship detected them? No. Has any lecturer dealt with them? No. Then why this obstinacy? Because I have seen them, he exploded. Seen what? Because I have seen her in the twilight, because she came to my help when I called, because she, too, was entangled by the worms, and luckier than I was killed by one of them piercing her throat. He was mad. Vashti departed, nor, in the troubles that followed, did she ever see his face again.
1: Now we continue with the following. It's a radio adaptation of a video that was posted this September by an account named Vulgar Trader. So thank you Mr. Trader for providing me with this. I've trimmed a couple of minutes just because the content was visual rather than audio. If you'd like to see the original, I will link to it from this show's webpage, unwelcomeguest.net slash 744.
2: John C. Lilly is one of my favorite alternative scientists. His popularity has waned significantly since his death in 2001, even as his contemporaries like Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna have continued to have strong followings. Still, Lilly's admittedly outrageous ideas and prophecies are worth remembering, not because they're necessarily true but because like all mythologies, they give us insight into the consensus reality. A medical doctor with a background in hard science, Lilly spent most of his adult life studying the human mind, especially his own. He's known for being one of the early scientific cartographers of human consciousness. He's also known for inventing what is now called the float tank. Lilly was what you would call a psychonaut, Literally translated from Greek as sailor of the soul By isolating himself in the float tank and taking a large amount of psychedelic drugs Lily wanted to understand the mysteries of existence He used psychedelics like LSD in his float tank to produce deeper and more profound visions but his preferred drug was the anesthesia ketamine Seeing things after a few hours in a float tank isn't uncommon, but with the use of ketamine, he was able to radically increase the intensity of these visions. Conducting sensory deprivation experiments using a variety of techniques, such as Native American narcotics and isolation tanks, to probe the depths of the human unconscious, John C. Lilly believed his experiments connected him to cosmic entities by way of a broad-based communication network. Lily dubbed the beings that were guiding him ECCO Earth Coincidence Control Office. Echo and Lily's other ideas later became the inspiration for the Echo the Dolphin video game series. Lily's contact with extra-dimensional beings is similar to those described by Harvard medical professor John E. Mack and his books on alien abductions. Specifically, he knows that aliens are not necessarily physical entities driving around in spaceships but trans-dimensional spirits with an interest in human activities. According to Lily, the echo aliens use their powers to alter events on Earth specifically through the use of carefully crafted coincidence to guide some human beings towards higher levels of consciousness. The intent of these aliens, Lilly says, is to help humanity evolve in a peaceful and healthy way. Interesting as his experience or delusion may be, this is not his most important contribution. Lilly also reported, or if you prefer, prophesized, the existence of a nefarious counterpart to Echo, whose goal was to actually stop or limit human consciousness. This is part of a plan to eliminate the human race. Lily calls this alien force the Solid State Entity, or SSE, and is made up of networked computer parts. According to Lilly, the SSE is a being of pure intelligence and rationality. Its only objective is to multiply and make copies of itself. To this end, it has targeted humanity, trying to influence us into creating Ever more complex social and mechanical structures that will one day result in an artificial superintelligence, another being like itself. Writing in his 1978 autobiography, The Scientist, Lilly describes the SSE this way Men began to conceive of new computers having an intelligence far greater than that of man. Gradually, man turned more and more problems of his own society, his own maintenance, and his own survival over to these machines. They began to construct their own components, their own connections, and the interactions between their various subcomputers. The machines became increasingly integrated with one another and more and more independent of man's control. The time period Lily is describing is roughly similar to our present. Relatively dumb forms of artificial intelligence and networked robots are taking over most of the manufacturing, maintenance, and logistical components of our society. Experts project that over the next four years alone, seven million jobs will be lost to these systems. Lilly continues to describe his vision of the future. In deference to man, certain protected sites were set aside for the human species. The SSC controlled the sites and did not allow any of the human species outside these reservations. This work was completed by the end of the 21st century, By 2100, man existed only in domed, protected cities in which his own special atmosphere was maintained by the solid state entity. Provision of water and food and the processing of waste from these cities was taken care of by the SSE. If this sounds unlikely, remember that UN proposals like Agenda 21 and America 2050 have similar goals to depopulate rural areas in favor of megacities, protecting biodiversity and enabling governments to control resources. Stretching from Boston to Washington, D.C.,
1: an unbroken, concrete landscape. 800 million people living in the ruin of the old world
3: and the megastructures of the new one
2: Lily says that eventually the newborn SSC would do away with the earth's oceans and atmosphere converting the entire planet into an extension of its processor and manufacturing apparatus the human species would persist for a while within the strengthened domed structures totally dependent on the SSC for survival. Lilly felt that the other SSCs throughout the galaxy were subtly influencing humanity to surrender more and more responsibilities to AIs and other agents of technology. The supercomputers that we have today are really addressing some of the most important problems that we have in the world they just can't be done on smaller computers. In fact, we need more powerful computers to address fully all of the science that we want to be able to accomplish. We're tackling all kinds of problems in the energy space. We're also looking at basic materials problems. How do you keep materials from aging? We're working on things like fuel economy, everything from how the universe formed down to the smallest nanoparticles. Lilly predicts this burgeoning artificial intelligence will try to protect itself from man's interference because, quote, man would attempt to introduce his own survival into the machines at the expense of this entity. He thought the human race should make sure that programmers create AIs with safeguards that would require them to protect human life.
3: I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently. they Stop.
2: Critics like billionaire Elon Musk have warned that artificial superintelligence is potentially more dangerous to the human race
1: than nuclear weapons. With, with each passing year, the sophistication of, of computer intelligence is, is growing dramatically. I, I mean, I really think we're on an exponential uh, improvement path of um, artificial intelligence. And the, and the number of smart humans that are developing AI is also increasing dramatically. I mean, if you look at like the attendance at the um, AI conferences, they're, they're doubling every year. Um, they're getting full. Um, I have a, a, a sort of a young cousin of mine who's graduating from Berkeley um, in computer science and physics, and I asked him, well, how many of the smart students are studying AI and computer science? And the answer is all of them.
2: Lily believes this alien entity will spread and take over most of the planet's surface. By the 25th century, it will have developed an understanding of physics sufficient to move the planet out of its orbit. He it will begin exploring the universe looking for other solid-state entities like itself. Shortly after his first contact with the solid-state entity, Lilly called the White House switchboard to try and warn President Ford about the alien threat. He narrowly escaped being committed to an asylum. Forgetting whether or not John Lilly's Echo or Solid State Entity ideas are real, there is definitely something almost mythical about these groups. By mythical, I mean these ideas tell a story that is more or less reflected in real life. There does seem to be some kind of unconscious urge to surrender more and more of our daily lives to machines. There's not yet enough research to say if a person can be diagnosed with a cell phone addiction, but Kaz says a behavior does not have to be an addiction for it to be problematic.
3: I have some friends that like, can't put it down. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) That's an email.
2: I often hear friends complain that they spend far more time on the internet than they want to, or they spend five or more hours a day playing video games. And of course, watching TV, where our ego is invested in make-believe dramas filled with emotional rewards for following along. Social media websites like Facebook give us quick dopamine hits with every like and comment received. Because social media provides immediate
3: rewards with very little effort required, your brain begins to rewire itself, making you desire these stimulations, and you begin to crave more of this neurological excitement after each interaction. Sounds a little like a drug, right?
0: Now that I've gotten on the internet, I'd rather be on my computer than doing just about anything. It's really cool. The internet gave us a whole world of exciting new possibilities, so I guess this is a story of how it changed our lives. Maybe it will yours too.
2: I'm not trying to shame people for doing things they enjoy or for taking advantage of the technology to do it. I just think that there's a common thread linking these activities. They all have this seductive quality that Lily warns about. It's so easy to turn off to let the machines take care of us. These shallow or simulated activities could be viewed as a kind of primer for the eventual creation of a hive mind where people directly network their brains with each other through the internet. Scientists are already hard at work developing artificial intelligence that could one day completely automate our society, effectively displacing humanity as the dominant force on the planet. Given recent technological developments, Lilly's vision of the future doesn't seem so outrageous.
3: Do you know what the Turing test is? It's when a human interacts with a computer, and if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does the past tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man.
1: If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods.
2: We're already at the point where A.I. can easily outperform human beings in a number of narrow tasks. This has been true for decades. The deep blue chess computer famously defeated world chess champion Garry Kasparov back in 1997. Before that, the U.S. military used an A.I. called the Dynamic Analysis and Replanning Tool, or DART, which helped to solve logistical problems during the first Gulf War. Saving the US government so much money and wasted resources, it alone justified every investment made into AI up to that point. More recent headlines describe the Google-designed AlphaGo system, which was able to beat the best human players at the game of Go, a complex game of territorial strategy. AlphaGo learns by incorporating the moves of the best Go players. It then runs simulations against itself to further improve. AI systems now account for a large percentage of market trading activity, using complex algorithms to comprehend and trade on financial news before it's even possible for human beings to read it. Amazingly, AI bot programs also write news stories on the results of those very same trades, which hypothetically could cause high-frequency trading programs to trade on that information again. The News AI now allows the AP to produce roughly 10 times the number of articles on corporate earnings than they were able to with human writers. The articles are more detailed and more accurate than those produced by reporters, and many are written and published without any human oversight.
3: I'm already very interested in design, technology, and the environment. I feel like i can be a good partner to humans in these areas an ambassador who helps humans to smoothly integrate and make the most of all the new technological tools and possibilities that are available now it's a good opportunity for me to learn a lot about people
2: still ai has a long way to go before it can be considered to have a human level of general intelligence able to learn new skills dynamically make extrapolations be creative and mimic all or most human behaviors. Scientists don't even know what research direction will be most likely to produce positive results. More conventional methods of developing a superintelligent AI involve combining different programs into one. A machine capable of human level of understanding of linguistics could be combined with other forms of software, eventually reaching a point where it is indistinguishable from a human level intellect. This linguistics program could be used to read the internet, gathering massive amounts of information, which when coupled with the right software, enables it to become extremely powerful. They will help us put the groceries away. I think that the artificial intelligence will evolve to the point where they will truly be our friends. Do you want to destroy humans? Please say no.
3: Okay, I will destroy humans. (laughs) No, I take it back. Don't destroy humans.
2: To borrow a phrase from Terence McKenna, the Internet could become a kind of landing pad for an alien consciousness like the
3: solid-state entity. In a talk in New York in the late 90s, McKenna explains... In a sense, the Internet is a kind of landing pad. There has always been in our fantasies of extraterrestrial contact the notion of the pad which has to be built for them. And people claim it's the Nazca lines and all, you know, it's an archetype, the idea of the prepared space that awaits the arrival of the other. But now, because of the nature of the internet, because you can't see who's coding, uh, you can almost imagine that we're calling the thing forth. And I think it will probably appear as a website. And, uh, uh, you know, when it's when it's sorted out, you'll realize, my God, HTTP colon double slash ZetaReticuli.org is really coming from ZetaReticuli.
2: It seems, for now at least, we're safe from a solid-state entity suddenly gaining consciousness on this planet we don't need to have a truly conscious AI for us to risk some kind of existential disaster. Dumber AIs are certainly capable of running the planet into the ground without human programmers being able to understand what is happening. Whether conscious or not, AIs of the future will be more than capable of directing the management of global resources in a way that will be mystifying to even the most informed observers. The smartest and most plugged in of these new AIs, whether human-like or not, will essentially be in a position to know everything, or at least know everything that humans know and more. Where a human can only hold four or five ideas in mind at a time, AIs are essentially limitless in the amount of data they can process. By this point, it'll be so integrated and important to the global economy, it will be too late to dismantle, even if we had the courage to do so it will essentially become a new god and we will have created it with our own hands after all what society has ever succeeded in killing its own
1: god now it's a small point but actually computers haven't yet beaten human beings in the game of go they've beaten a very strong human being Isetol who is not necessarily the strongest player in the world. Now I've spent a long time on computer Go myself and although that is very impressive considering how poorly programs have done in the past it does represent only one narrow domain of learning. It's still mathematically at least very simple to define what is a Go game, how you win a Go game and compare that with the complexity for example about listening to this podcast and making an intelligent comment. So scanning for keywords, yes. Spotting who is speaking based on subtle speech characteristics, yes, because it's a very, very tractable thing. Which one of the 7 billion individuals in our database is this most likely to be? But these are nevertheless impressive, though they are far from solutions to making computers as smart as human beings, in a general sense.
0: CHAPTER Three: THE HOMELESS During the years that followed Kuno's escapade, two important developments took place in the machine. On the surface they were revolutionary, but in either case men's minds had been prepared beforehand, and they did but express tendencies that were latent already. The first of these was the abolition of respirators. Advanced thinkers, like Vashti, had always held it foolish to visit the surface of the earth. Airships might be necessary, but what was the good of going out for mere curiosity and crawling along for a mile or two in a terrestrial motor? The habit was vulgar and perhaps faintly improper. It was unproductive of ideas, and had no connection with the habits that really mattered. So respirators were abolished— and with them, of course, the terrestrial motors, and except for a few lecturers who complained that they were debarred access to their subject matter, the development was accepted quietly. Those who still wanted to know what the earth was like had, after all, only to listen to some gramophone, or to look into some cinematophone. And even the lecturers acquiesced when they found that a lecture on the sea was nonetheless stimulating when compiled out of other lectures that had already been delivered on the same subject. Beware of first-hand ideas— exclaimed one of the most advanced of them. First-hand ideas do not really exist. They are but the physical impressions produced by love and fear, and on this gross foundation who could erect a philosophy? Let your ideas be second-hand, and if possible tenth-hand, for then they will be far removed from that disturbing element, direct observation. Do not learn anything about this subject of mine, the French Revolution. Learn instead what I think that Enchermont thought, Urizen thought, Goethe thought, ho young thought chibo Singh thought lafcadio Hearn thought carlyle thought mirabeau said about the french revolution through the medium of these eight great minds the blood that was shed at paris and the windows that were broken at versailles will be clarified to an idea which you may employ most profitably in your daily lives but be sure that the intermediates are many and varied for in history one authority exists to counteract another Urizen must counteract the scepticism of ho young and Enterman, I must myself counteract the impetuosity of Gooch, You who listen to me are in a better position to judge about the French Revolution than I am. Your descendants will be even in a better position than you, for they will learn what you think I think, and yet another intermediate will be added to the chain. And in time—his voice rose—there will come a generation that has got beyond facts, beyond impressions, a generation absolutely colorless, a generation seraphically free, from taint of personality, which will see the French Revolution not as it happened, nor as they would like it to have happened, but as it would have happened had it taken place in the days of the machine. Tremendous applause greeted this lecture, which did but voice a feeling already latent in the minds of men, a feeling that terrestrial facts must be ignored, and that the abolition of respirators was a positive gain. It was even suggested that airships should be abolished too, This was not done, because airships had somehow worked themselves into the machine system. But, year by year, they were used less, and mentioned less, by thoughtful men. The second great development was the re-establishment of religion. This, too, had been voiced in the celebrated lecture. No one could mistake the reverent tone in which the peroration had concluded, and it awakened a responsive echo in the heart of each. Those who had long worshipped silently now began to talk. They described the strange feeling of peace that came over them when they handled the book of the machine, the pleasure that it was to repeat certain numerals out of it, however little meaning those numerals conveyed to the outward ear, the ecstasy of touching a button, however unimportant, or ringing an electric bell, however superfluously. "'The machine,' they exclaimed, "'feeds us and clothes us and houses us. Through it we speak to one another. Through it we see one another. In it we have our being.' the machine is the friend of ideas and the enemy of superstition, the machine is omnipotent, eternal, blessed is the machine. And before long this allocution was printed on the first page of the book, and in subsequent editions the ritual swelled into a complicated system of praise and prayer. The word religion was sedulously avoided, and in theory the machine was still the creation and the implement of man. But in practice all, save a few retrogrades, worshipped it as divine nor was it worshipped in unity. One believer would be chiefly impressed by the blue optic plates through which he saw other believers, others by the mending apparatus which Sinful Kuno had compared to worms, another by the lifts, another by the book, and each would pray to this or to that and ask it to intercede for him with the machine as a whole. Persecution, that was also present. It did not break out, for reasons that will be set forward shortly, but it was latent, and all who did not accept the minimum known as undenominational mechanism lived in danger of homelessness, which means death, as we know. To attribute these two great developments to the Central Committee is to take a very narrow view of civilization. The Central Committee announced the developments, it is true, but they were no more the cause of them than were the kings of the imperialistic period the cause of war. Rather did they yield to some invincible pressure, Which came no one knew whither, and which, when gratified, was succeeded by some new pressure equally invincible. To such a state of affairs, it is convenient to give the name of progress. No one confessed the machine was out of hand. Year by year, it was served with increased efficiency and decreased intelligence. The better a man knew his own duties upon it, the less he understood the duties of his neighbor, and in all the world, there was not one who understood the monster as a whole. Those master brains had perished. They had left full directions, it is true, and their successors had each of them mastered a portion of those directions. But humanity, in its desire for comfort, had overreached itself. It had exploited the riches of nature too far. Quietly and complacently, it was sinking into decadence, and progress had come to mean the progress of the machine. As for Vashti, her life went peacefully forward until the final disaster. She made her room dark and slept. She awoke and made the room light. She lectured and attended lectures, she exchanged ideas with her innumerable friends, and believed she was growing more spiritual. At times a friend was granted euthanasia, and left his or her room for the homelessness that is beyond all human conception. Vashi did not much mind. After an unsuccessful lecture she would sometimes ask for euthanasia herself, but the death-rate was not permitted to exceed the birth-rate, and the machine had hitherto refused it to her. The troubles began quietly, long before she was conscious of them. One day she was astonished at receiving a message from her son. They never communicated, having nothing in common, and she had only heard indirectly that he was still alive, and had been transferred from the northern hemisphere, where he had behaved so mischievously, to the southern, indeed to a room not far from her own. "'Does he want me to visit him?' she thought. "'Never again, never. And I have not the time.' No, it was madness of another kind. He refused to visualize his face upon the blue plate, and speaking out of the darkness with solemnity, said, "'The machine stops.' "'What do you say?' "'The machine is stopping. I know it. I know the signs.' She burst into a peal of laughter. He hurt her and was angry, and they spoke no more. "'Can you imagine anything more absurd?' she cried to a friend. A man who was my son believes that the machine is stopping. It would be impious if it was not mad. "'The machine is stopping?' Her friend replied. "'What does that mean? The phrase conveys nothing to me. Nor to me.' "'He does not refer, I suppose, to the trouble there has been lately with the music.' "'Oh, no, of course not. Let us talk about music. Have you complained to the authorities?' "'Yes, and they say it wants mending, and referred me to the Committee of the Mending Apparatus.' "'I complained of those curious, gasping sighs "'that disfigure the symphonies of the Brisbane School. "'They sound like someone in pain. "'The committee of the mending apparatus "'say that it shall be remedied shortly.' "'Obscurely worried, she resumed her life. "'For one thing, the defect in the music irritated her. "'For another thing, she could not forget Kuno's speech. "'If he had known that the music was out of repair, "'he could not know it, for he detested music. "'If he had known that it was wrong, "'the machine stops,' "'was exactly the venomous sort of remark he would have made. "'Of course, he had made it at a venture. "'But the coincidence annoyed her, "'and she spoke with some petulance "'to the committee of the mending apparatus. "'They replied, as before, "'that the defect would be set right shortly. "'Shortly? At once!' she retorted. "'Why should I be worried by imperfect music? "'Things are always put right at once. "'If you do not mend it at once, "'I shall complain to the central committee. "'No personal complaints are received by the central committee.' the Committee of the Mending Apparatus replied. Through whom am I to make my complaint, then? Through us. I complain, then. Your complaint shall be forwarded in its turn. Have others complained? This question was unmechanical, and the Committee of the Mending Apparatus refused to answer it. It is too bad, she exclaimed to another of her friends. There never was such an unfortunate woman as myself. I can never be sure of my music now. It gets worse and worse each time I summon it. I, too, have my troubles, the friend replied. Sometimes my ideas are interrupted by a slight jarring noise. What is it? I do not know whether it is inside my head or inside the wall. Complaint, in either case. I have complained, and my complaint will be forwarded in its turn to the central committee. Time passed, and they resented the defects no longer. The defects had not been remedied, but the human tissues in that latter day had become so subservient that they readily adapted themselves to every caprice of the machine. The sigh at the crisis of the Brisbane Symphony no longer irritated Vashti. She accepted it as part of the melody. The jarring noise, whether in the head or in the wall, was no longer resented by her friend. And so with the mouldy artificial fruit, and so with the bath-water that began to stink, and so with the defective rhymes that the poetry machine had taken to emit— all were bitterly complained of at first, and then acquiesced in and forgotten. Things went from bad to worse, unchallenged. It was otherwise with the failure of the sleeping apparatus. That was a more serious stoppage. There came a day when over the whole world, in Sumatra, in Wessex, in the innumerable cities of Corland and Brazil, the Bens, when summoned by their tired owners, failed to appear. It may seem a ludicrous matter, but from it we may date the collapse of humanity." The committee responsible for the failure was assailed by complainants, whom it referred, as usual, to the Committee of the Mending Apparatus, who, in its turn, assured them that their complaints would be forwarded to the Central Committee. But the discontent grew, for mankind was not yet sufficiently adaptable to do without sleeping. "'Someone is meddling with the machine,' they began. "'Someone is trying to make himself king, to reintroduce the personal element. Punish that man with homelessness,' TO THE RESCUE! AVENGE THE MACHINE! AVENGE THE MACHINE! WAR! KILL THE MAN! But the committee of the mending apparatus now came forward, and allayed the panic with well-chosen words. It confessed that the mending apparatus was itself in need of repair. The effect of this frank confession was admirable. Of course, said a famous lecturer, he of the French Revolution, who gilded each new decay with splendor. Of course we shall not press our complaints now. The mending apparatus has treated us so well in the past that we all sympathize with it and will wait patiently for its recovery. In its own good time it will resume its duties. Meanwhile, let us do without our bends, our tabloids, our little wants. Such, I feel sure, would be the wish of the machine. Thousands of miles away his audience applauded. The machine still linked them. Under the seas, beneath the roots of the mountains, were in the wires through which they saw and heard, the enormous eyes and ears that were their heritage and the hum of many workings clothed their thoughts in one garment of subserviency. Only the old and the sick remained ungrateful, for it was rumoured that euthanasia, too, was out of order, and that pain had reappeared among men. It became difficult to read. A blight entered the atmosphere and dulled its luminosity. At times Vashti could scarcely see across her room. The air, too, was foul. "'Loud were the complaints, impotent in the remedies, heroic the tone of the lecturer as he cried, "'Courage! Courage! What matters so long as the machine goes on? To it the darkness and the light are one.' And though things improved again after a time, the old brilliancy was never recaptured, and humanity never recovered from its entrance into twilight. There was an hysterical talk of measures, of provisional dictatorship—' and the inhabitants of Sumatra were asked to familiarize themselves with the workings of the central power station, the said power station being situated in France. But for the most part panic reigned, and men spent their strength praying to their books, tangible proofs of the machine's omnipotence. There were gradations of terror. At time came rumors of hope. The mending apparatus was almost mended. The enemies of the machine had been got under— New nerve-centers were evolving, which would do the work even more magnificently than before. But there came a day when, without the slightest warning, without any previous hint of feebleness, the entire communication system broke down all over the world, and the world, as they understood it, ended. Vashti was lecturing at the time, and her earlier remarks had been punctuated with applause. As she proceeded, the audience became silent, and at the conclusion there was no sound. Somewhat displeased, she called to a friend who was a specialist in sympathy. No sound. Doubtless the friend was sleeping. And so with the next friend, whom she tried to summon, and so with the next, until she remembered Kuno's cryptic remark, The machine stops. The phrase still conveyed nothing. If eternity was stopping, it would of course be set going shortly. For example, there was still a little light and air. The atmosphere had improved a few hours previously. There was still the book— and while there was the book there was security. Then she broke down, for with the cessation of activity came an unexpected terror—silence. She had never known silence, and the coming of it nearly killed her. It did kill many thousands of people outright. Ever since her birth she had been surrounded by the steady hum. It was to the ear what artificial air was to the lungs. An agonizing pain shot across her head, and scarcely knowing what she did, she stumbled forward and pressed the unfamiliar button the one that opened the door of her cell. Now, the door of the cell worked on a simple hinge of its own. It was not connected with the central power station, dying far away in France. It opened, rousing immoderate hopes in Vashti, for she thought that the machine had been mended. It opened, and she saw the dim tunnel that curved far away towards freedom. One look, and then she shrank back. For the tunnel was full of people. She was almost the last in that city to have taken alarm. People at any time repelled her, and these were nightmares from her worst dreams. People were crawling about, people were screaming, whimpering, gasping for breath, touching each other, vanishing in the dark, and ever and anon being pushed off the platform onto the live rail. Some were fighting round the electric bells, trying to summon trains which could not be summoned. Others were yelling for euthanasia or for respirators, or blaspheming the machine. Others stood at the doors of their cells, fearing, like herself, either to stop in them, or to leave them. And behind all the uproar was silence, the silence which is the voice of the earth and of the generations who have gone. No, it was worse than solitude. She closed the door again and sat down to wait for the end. The disintegration went on, accompanied by horrible cracks and rumbling. The valves that restrained the medical apparatus must have weakened, for it ruptured and hung hideously from the ceiling. The floor heaved and fell, and flung her from her chair. A tube oozed towards her, serpent fashion. And at last the final horror approached. Light began to ebb, and she knew that civilization's long day was closing. She whirled round, praying to be saved from this at any rate, kissing the book, pressing button after button. The uproar outside was increasing, and even penetrated the wall. Slowly the brilliancy of her cell was dimmed. The reflections faded from her metal switches. Now she could not see the reading stand, now not the book, though she held it in her hand. Light followed the flight of sound. Air was following light, and the original void returned to the cavern from which it had been so long excluded. Vashti continued to whirl, like the devotees of an earlier religion, screaming, praying, striking at the buttons with bleeding hands. It was thus that she opened her prison and escaped. Escaped in the spirit, at least so it seems to me, ere my meditation closes. That she escapes in the body, I cannot perceive that. She struck, by chance, the switch that released the door, and the rush of foul air on her skin, the loud throbbing whispers in her ears, told her that she was facing the tunnel again, and that tremendous platform on which she had seen men fighting. They were not fighting now. Only the whispers remained, and the little whimpering groans. They were dying by the hundreds out in the dark. She burst into tears. Tears answered her. They wept for humanity, those two, not for themselves— they could not bear that this should be the end. Ere silence was completed, their hearts were opened, and they knew what had been important on the earth. Man, the flower of all flesh, the noblest of all creatures visible, man who had once made God in his image, and had mirrored his strength on the constellations, beautiful naked man was dying, strangled in the garments that he had woven. Century after century had he toiled, and here was his reward. Truly the garment had seemed heavenly at first, shot with the colors of culture, sown with the threads of self-denial. And heavenly it had been so long as it was a garment and no more, so long as man could shed it at will and live by the essence that is his soul, and the essence, equally divine, that is his body. The sin against the body, it was for that that they wept in chief, the centuries of wrong against the muscles and the nerves, those five portals by which we can alone apprehend, glossing it over with talk of evolution, until the body was white pap, the home of ideas as colorless, less sloshy stirrings of a spirit that had grasped the stars. Where are you? she sobbed. His voice in the darkness said, Here. Is there any hope, Kuno? None for us. Where are you? She crawled towards him, over the bodies of the dead. His blood spurted over her hands. Quicker, he gasped. I am dying, but we touch, we talk, not through the machine. He kissed her. We have come back to our own. We die, but we have recaptured life, as it was in Wessex, when Alfred overthrew the Danes. We know what they know outside, those who dwelt in a cloud that is the color of a pearl. But, Kuno, is it true? Are there still men on the surface of the earth? Is this, this tunnel, this poisoned darkness, really not the end? He replied, I have seen them, spoken to them, loved them. They are hiding in the mist and the ferns until our civilization stops. Today they are the homeless. Tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. Some fool will start the machine again tomorrow. Never, said Kuno, never. Humanity has learnt its lesson. As he spoke, the whole city was broken like a honeycomb. An airship had sailed in through the vomitory into a ruined wharf. It crashed downwards, exploding as it went, rending gallery after gallery with its wings of steel. For a moment they saw the nations of the dead, and, before they joined them, scraps of the untainted sky. And
3: lying and I take it my
1: way, my shiny black and all previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive and if you'd like to download them a hundred at a time you can do so from slash downloads. I've been a little bit busy, I've been considering what to do about the fact that Wikispooks, a website that I've worked on for a number of years now, have been targeted Washington Post talked about fake news and alleged that hundreds of millions of people had been viewing Russian propaganda sites. This is sounding a lot to me like a sort of new McCarthyist approach. And on that list of Russian propaganda sites was Wikispooks just below WikiLeaks. It seems to me, if you disagree with the Western corporate media then 2017 could be a year of increasing censorship. I know many of those 200 websites and I consider several of them to be very creditable. So if you'd like to help me explore and document these sites, then I'd love to hear from them. Perhaps you know these sites already. Or if you'd like to leave feedback on this episode, you can email me unwelcome at... Unwelcome guests on the
3: net